We need to give a special thanks this morning to um, Phil, who brought in some donuts for us. Thank you, Phil. And Kelly's wife, Heidi, made the uh, homemade sausage egg with muffin, ham with muffin thing. The only thing we're missing back there is some Coca-Cola to wash it all down. I don't share. <laughs> you got it. It's <laughs> good. All right, here's what we're going to do today. We're going to um, spend more time in here than, uh, than we normally do. So what I want to do is um, just briefly run through again the back of your notebook. Uh, we've been doing this every single time. Uh, this is what you spit out uh, in the middle of the night when you were woken up by your 10-year-old who says he has to throw up, and you, uh, which was last night. <laughs> And you just start off, shepherd your heart. Home. Uh, where's the bathroom? Um, to what? Yeah, that too. Yeah. So anyway, we um, want to just run through these briefly. Remember, we're, these are the leadership, biblical, spiritual disciplines that we're calling the men of Grace Bible Church to. We want to all unite. We want to unite the men of our church around these six disciplines. The first one is uh, where everything begins, the heart. Uh, we need to be men who shepherd our hearts, who take responsibility for our, our the, the spiritual condition we are in. And the way that you primarily shepherd your heart is you bring your heart and your mind and your soul to the Word of God, uh, because that is the greatest and, and clearest revelation of God that we have anywhere. Um, it is the best that we can have of God at this time that we live in and um, in these days. And so we go to his word primarily to meet with him. We don't go to his word to check off a box saying that we did it. We don't go to the word to merely put together a, a message for a small group or a sermon. We don't go to the word of God to win an argument um, merely. Um, look, there are times when you need to win an argument. And there are times when you need to come to the Word of God to put to to study and to put together a lesson, but those are never the primary reasons why you come. There's always something in front of all of that, and that is you come to the Word and you open it because it's an opportunity to meet with God, not because the Bible is God. The Bible is not God. The Bible reveals God. It's revelation, right? And so that's what we do. We discipline our hearts. We shepherd our lives uh, to come to the Word of God in order to meet with the God of Word, to worship Him, to love Him, to fear Him, to obey Him. Uh, that needs to make an automatic impact then on the people that we live with in our homes. The first place of impact is our home. Um, our wives, if we have them, children, if we have them, our parents, if we're still in our home, siblings, uh, roommates, uh, wherever we are, we need to impact that place first with the gospel, with a heart for God. We want to see people around us influenced by that heart for God. Then we're ready to step out into ministry, discipline three, and minister to people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We want to uh, never graduate from the gospel ourselves. Um, what you see on the board behind me, it looks like gibberish to you, um, but we'll uh, put it all together this morning. Um, the gospel uh, never becomes irrelevant to you um, until you die. And even then, it's not irrelevant. All of its promises um, continue to, to press on and hold true in your condition after death. 
Um, we never leave the gospel. The gospel isn't just for this moment right here when you get converted. Oftentimes that's what we, the way that the gospel has been portrayed to us, it's fire insurance. You don't want to go to hell, do you? Well, believe in Jesus. Okay, I did. Great. What do you get? Well, you get heaven. Wonderful. That's great. So the gospel was appropriate for a sinner dead in his sins in order to get heaven. That's awesome. Thank you. And if I portray the gospel as being only that, I've missed out on the reality that the gospel has everything to say about this right here. Everything. You don't have this. You can't do this apart from the gospel. And I don't merely mean that you can't do it unless you're converted. I mean you can't do this by the pow- without the power of the gospel daily. So we want to bring that gospel to unbelievers. We want to bring that gospel to believers. We want to preach the gospel and proclaim the gospel everywhere. We'll talk more about that in a moment. Um, discipline 4 is on the qualifications. We just spent two Saturdays on that uh, from Acts 6 and 1 Timothy 3. Uh, we want to push you guys right in front of those biblical qualifications for deacons um, and for elders and say, aspire to these things. Be prayerful about them in such a way that God might answer your prayers and make you into a qualified man so that you can be um, a qualified servant leader in a ministry or so that you can be a qualified elder shepherding in the church. This church needs that. It doesn't just happen on its own. Um, God and only God makes a man qualified. Programs don't make a man qualified. If a program can be used to serve that purpose to that end, that's what we're hoping for with Build and with H3 and and the things that we do with men intentionally. Um, But only God can do it. And if you sit back and do nothing, don't expect to become qualified. You just won't. You have to pay attention to it. You have to bring yourself to it. We're trying to just accelerate that with you. Discipline five is on the hermeneutic. We'll be coming uh, towards another few times together. We'll hit three of those um, sessions on the hermeneutic. How do we interpret the Bible um, at Grace Bible Church? Um, It's important for you to know that um, so you understand why the Bible is handled the way that it is and wherever it's taught and and so that if you... uh, are a teacher, you handle the word of God in the same way as the others in this church. Um, And all of this is happening not just at any church, but it's happening at a specific church. And Discipline 5 or 6 is about um, the biblical vision and the gospel purpose of Grace Bible Church. We set before us, we we have in our sights these things that the the Bible spells out, uh, the glory of God in the cross of Jesus, all for the transformation of life that the Holy Spirit brings. That's what we want to keep in our sights. That's a very simple way of trying to sum up the message of the Bible. And we want to keep our sights on that. That's our vision. Okay? We keep our sights on the Bible. But where we live in redemptive history means that we're going to be carrying out a very specific purpose that God has. It's a gospel purpose. We do not carry out Abraham's purpose and we do not carry out Israel's purpose. Um, We carry out the church's purpose. That's not to say that there aren't things that are similar in each of those stages, right? There are. Um, Salvation by grace through faith alone is true throughout all of that. That's continuous. Nothing changes in the Bible in that sense. Oh, but lots of things change in the Bible from Abraham to Moses to the church. And so we fulfill the purpose that is in the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is to draw in sinners with the gospel 
um, and by the gospel to build up sinners also that they can be sent out with the gospel, right? So that's what we're trying to be about at, at uh, Grace Bible Church. All right, so that's what we're here for. And we're making our way through those six disciplines. Um, today what we're going to do is we're going to take a, a big leap backwards to um, discipline one. And we're going to refresh our minds and our hearts on um, the heart and how the heart has hope before God. <clears throat> so what I want to do is I want to give us um, a little bit of time uh, in our small groups. So we're going to break up and do that next. But you're only going to get, we need to be back in here by a quarter after. I'm sorry, not, yeah, a quarter after. All right, so 7.15, we're, we're back in here. I know that doesn't give you as much time, but... Um, just try to zero in on your best questions or your best parts from homework, uh, small group leaders. And uh, we'll be back in here at 7.15, okay? All right. Thanks, guys. Be back in a moment. So grab that diagram and um, get it out in front of you. I've, I've tried to, um, uh, in, in one sense, put that up on the screen or the screen, on the, on the whiteboard. I cannot draw a person, so I, but I can draw an oval. <laughs> That's, yeah. So this double, we'll do some, we'll, we'll talk about cell division, <laughs> some meiosis and mitosis and that kind of good stuff. All right, so get that sheet out in front of you. Let's talk about this for a minute. What I want to do is, is you can take notes on this sheet if you want on some of the things we say and some of the scriptures we use. But um, I want to just run through the parts that you have on it. And we'll just kind of start from the top, and I'll kind of explain what the diagram just says for itself, and then I'll put some other pieces together with it. If you look, what this basically does is just, it describes the human condition before salvation and after salvation has taken place. Okay, so if you start over on the left side towards the top, um, when you are lost in your sin, you are in an unmixed condition. Um, that's what's being shown over here on this one side. That's the, the gray figure on the, on the left side of your paper. You'll see a, like an inside line and an outer uh, side line on the person. Um, that's represented here by uh, just the others, right? And, and just the one color. It's unmixed. It's just one condition. One substance. Um, total depravity. Right? Then you have a solid line to the right of that, a double line, and that's to show that when you cross that line, it's a more significant crossing than any other of the other vertical lines. Okay? Then you move into what is called here a mixed condition at the top. This represents the Christian life that you live now, this whole area. It's a, it's a mixed condition. It's very different than this condition. Okay? And that's where it's um, shown with two different colors here on the, on the screen. And you can see, um, and the reason there's three of them, we could put a million of them. It, the, the point is to show a transition, a process, a growth, uh, an improvement, uh, continuing a progression, going on and on and on. Okay? Um, we call this the new creation, 2 Corinthians 5.17. If any man is in Christ, cross that line, that event of being in Christ... You are a new creature. The old things passed away. And behold, new things have come. Right? Um, this is... Uh, let, me, let me go on to the topic. I'll just keep going to the right here. When you die, 
you meet death. You enter into, again, an unmixed condition, but oh, how this condition is very different than this unmixed condition, right? All right, you'll notice that there's no outer uh, part of the figure of the body on your on yours, and I try to take the outside one off. That's because your body is in the grave, but you continue. This is you. This is you. And this is you, and this is you, and this is you, but... This is not any less you without your body. Okay? Um, If Jesus were to come back today, and we are at this point, we would skip death, the believers would, according to 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18, and 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50 to 57. We would, this perishable would put on the imperishable. This mortal would put on immortality. We would just skip death and we would have a resurrected condition. The dead in Christ will rise first. The ones who are here, they rise first. They have privilege to go to him. We then will meet them together. We'll be together with him in the air. um, And thus we'll always be with the Lord. And this then is the eternal state. Now notice God's plan for the eternal state is that you have some kind of body. Jesus has a body. A physical body. Right now. Right? We will be like him. Okay? Now let me come back and work through a couple things a little bit lower. Unregenerate you. Back over here. You have an inner man, which we would uh, talk about. All of this is is you. Uh, It can be referred to as the heart, who you are inwardly out. Okay? You also have members. The outer shell that you see on your stick figure, that's represented by the outer uh, area here on, on my oval, those are your members. And what we mean by that is your physical body. It's your, it's your hands. It's your, it's, your, it's your faculties in many ways. It's, it's, uh, it's your body. It's your physical you. And the principle that is always at work in humanity, regardless of your condition, where you're at on this, is your members you know, always manifest you, who your inner man is. They give away what you are on the inside. They reveal what you are. What you do with your members of your body, what you do with your life, reflects and reveals who you are inwardly. Okay? When you cross the line of, of conversion, salvation, this is now regenerate you. This is, you must be born again. The way that you come across this is through being born again. This is regeneration. This is the work of the Spirit of God. And it is accomplished once for all. That's why I wrote in here, event. If you were to write that on your double line there, this is an event. When you go from unregenerate to regenerate, it's an event. It is not a process. Nobody is in the process today and tomorrow and next week of being born again. No, boom, born again. Okay? So, even though you this regeneration puts you into this new mixed condition once and for all, what happens but is a day-by-day process of growing, of being renewed in the spirit of your mind, Paul says. Okay, You are being renewed day-by-day. This is called progressive sanctification. That's why I wrote the word process across the bottom. Salvation, in terms of conversion, is a what? Event. Whose fingerprints are on this event? 
God's and God's alone. You have no fingerprints on them. This is a process of becoming renewed in your mind, of becoming more and more holy, of becoming progressively sanctified. Whose fingerprints are on this process? God's and yours. Do you see the difference? Okay. Uh, cross over to death, and you have the glorified body. This is Romans 8. Uh, the one who chooses us, who sanctifies us, who justifies us, is the one who glorifies us. And we are in a glorified condition. Okay, this is the ultimate glorified condition because it has the body. This is glorified as well, but it doesn't have the body yet. Okay? Now, let me um, add some things to this for you. Okay? And then I'll, you guys can ask questions along the way or make comments. Okay? Let me ask this question. Where does um, the influence of total depravity stop? Where does it stop? Where? Here. Here or if you're raptured. Total depravity's influence on you is here, certainly. It is the only influence on you here. But then you are saved. You are converted. But you are in a mixed condition in which total depravity still works on you. But it is not the only power that works on you. And so total depravity will be present all the way until you die or until Jesus comes back. Right? Does that make sense? Um, where is there a fight within yourself? And where is there not a fight within yourself? Where's the, where, where is there not a fight? On this side, you are not fighting against your condition. You love your condition. You love it. You love your sin. You are lost in it. You are drunk with it. You want more of it. There's no fight against your condition. God does something and he works in you. And you become... I don't want that. And boom, you, something has happened by God's grace in your life. And you enter all of the Christian life as a what? There was no, no fight over here. You become a Christian and what do you do all of your life? Okay. Fight. The Christian life is a fight. When you die and you get this condition, or this one when you're raptured, no fight anymore. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? A day when you won't have mixed motives. A day when you won't have sinful stains of, on, on everything you do. There will be no wondering why in this condition over here. There will be no wondering why. Why is it so hard for me to stay focused on Jesus? You will be riveted with him. You will love it so. There will be nothing that can distract you from it. There will be no fight against your pursuit of Jesus, your love for Jesus, your honor of Jesus, your fear of him, your obedience to him. Unmixed, no more fight. Rest. No rest. Mm, taste of rest. But we haven't eaten it fully. Okay? Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, so I just I just want to be careful that I don't that I, that it's my 
that it's my heart that's wanting to fight, not just sort of an outward appearance of wanting to, to battle sin. Because I think, um, you know, you can see someone and say, oh, gosh, I'm just sick of my condition. I'm sick of this mess I'm in. Um, and it's really um, a selfish motive. Not that they're sick of their sin, but they're just sick of their sin affecting them, inconveniencing them in some way. And I know that because in my life I have to really take account of why it is that I'm battling something. Am I really angry at the sin that I'm sitting or is it just the sin is inconveniencing me? Yeah. This here is, oh, there's always a, a, the, the possibility of doing things with the wrong motives and the wrong intentions. Now remember, <clears throat> your heart is not a part of you. It's not a piece of you. It's you, described from the inward position. So I, one of the I don't want you to get the sense of is that this is your heart on the inside, but this is not included in your heart on the outside. I mean, who you are, it's a way of describing who you are inwardly. It's you in totality. Um, the New Testament calls this more like the new creation or the new man. Um, the Old Testament, in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel was it, 36, talks about the new heart. I think that's a promise for Israel to get that there. That's not to say that we do not have a new heart now, but it's interesting that the, 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 the language of the New Testament primarily focuses on new creation uh, and a new man and an old, an old man being dead. Um, that's another part. Let me, let me throw some verses in here for you. Can I do that? Let's, let's turn in our Bibles. Go to, um, I want you to turn to Romans 6. I want to show you a little bit here from Romans 6 and we'll see how this fits in. And what I would encourage you to do is, is what, what I hope this does, I hope this, this diagram gives you pegs in your mind of where to hang Bible verses on as you read. Uh, where passages of Scripture are, are describing. What I encourage you to do, I'm still testing this. <coughs> Smed is testing this. Smed and I put this together. We worked on this um, because we just found ourselves continuing having questions about, wait a minute, is that passage talking about this? Or is it talking about this? Or is it talking about this? Is it talking about that? And then we were... So we found ourselves continuing to take out paper all the time and drawing this. And um, but let's, let's I encourage you to as you read your Bible, see where passages fit. Look at Romans six. I want to look at verse four. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death. What's that? We were buried with him at death and and died right here. Okay. Continue reading on. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Right there. Walking in newness of life. We were buried with him. Somehow we were united with him in his crucifixion. I have been crucified with Christ. Galatians 2.20 and it is no longer I who live, but here's the way Paul describes this way. Christ lives in me. See, Christ was not living in me over here, but now Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the, the flesh, in this 
body, I live by what? Faith in the Son of God. I didn't live by faith in the Son of God over here. And who is the Son of God over here? He's the one who loved me and gave himself up for me. Galatians 2.20. Right? Let's keep going with Romans 6 here. Uh, look, drop, drop down to verse 6. Knowing this, that our old self, here's the old man, our old man was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Where's that? The old man was crucified. It is not this. The old man is in the process continually of being crucified. No. This condition in which there is an unmixed condition, God killed it. It is dead. The lingering effects of total depravity continue, but this condition is dead. Guess what? Let me ask you this question. You are in this condition someplace right here, right now, if you are a believer. Can you ever go back to this condition, an unmixed condition? No. He killed it. That's why you can't go back. You were crucified with Christ. You were united with him in his crucifixion somehow, and God killed that condition. You can never go back to that. The lingering effects in an unmixed condition are there. You cannot confuse. You cannot confuse sin's lingering indwelling effect in you as you are in this same condition you were. You are not. Not because you did anything, but because God did it. You've been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer this I that lives. But the I that lives now is this one. Okay? Jeff. By what incorrect reasoning do some people think you can go back? Just getting... Here, here's what's... No, we don't want to do that today. Um, when people take this word process and they erase this event word and they take the word process and they put it here. You are in the process of giving this up and so depending on the process of giving it up and how it's going, you might be in, you might not be in. Or you can lose it. Yeah. See, the whole problem with the gospel, here's where heresy comes in, is when we take event realities and we mess them up with progressive or process events, or not events, but, but uh, conditions. Okay? Justification lines up in this category right here, event. It is something that only God does. And if God did it, he doesn't undo it. That's what, that was in my mind as you were saying that when it's a process, I think it's more prideful because we want to be the one. Oh yeah. The, the flesh, does. at any point, when God only has something on his fingerprints on something, the flesh would love to say, I, I can do it. In fact, we're going to talk about this. The flesh does this. The Pharisees did this. God, I'm going to take away what you say you do, and I'll show you how well I can do it. Watch me. I'll do it. And it becomes a process. Mike. Uh, so when we're reading our Bibles and we get to Ezekiel 36, we see the new covenant contained promises of the mountains, the animals on them, and God's actually covenanting with the mountain from Israel. In the midst of that, he's covenanting to give the people new hearts. When we're reading the New Testament, we have people the dinner with the disciples. Like, mm -hmm. how do we read our Bible 
I'll, I'll tell you the, the best that I understand it. Here's, let, let me see if I can rephrase it a different way for you. There is a promise in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36 of a new heart, a new covenant. Jesus, when he was with his disciples the night that he ate, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Right? So when he shed his blood, all that was needed for that Old Testament new covenant reality to take place was accomplished. Messiah, when he comes back, does not need to shed his blood again to inaugurate and to begin the new covenant. The question you have to ask yourself, in my opinion, is who was the new covenant promised to in Jeremiah 31? It's very clear. To the house of Israel, to the house of Jacob. Same thing in Ezekiel. So then the question becomes, Jesus died and somehow there's a gospel effect of the new covenant in his blood that has been done and and that's all that ever needed to be done. The question is, are we in this condition and we in the church, is this the full new covenant? I think that's where there's lots of questions that need to be asked. Um, We are benefiting from the new covenant realities of what Jesus did and shed in his blood. There's no doubt about it. There was some kind of, at his death, some kind of an inauguration of some new covenant realities. But Jeremiah 31 was not fulfilled in its entirety at the cross. Because the promise was made to Israel, and Israel is not benefiting from the new covenant realities. We, as Gentiles who are being grafted in as we believe, we are benefiting from much of what is spelled out, what it looks like was spelled out for Israel in the New Covenant, in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36. But what, again, what I come back to is the new, just look at the New Testament language for this. Look for a spot where Paul says, this is the new heart of the New Covenant. He talks about the New Covenant in 2 Corinthians 3. And I don't think it's unreasonable to say Uh, If he's talking about the new covenant, then he must be talking about the new heart. But he doesn't say the new heart in 2 Corinthians 3. But what he does call these who believe, he says we're new creations. He says an old man died and a a new man has come. Sounds like new covenant, new new heart language. But I think you're going to see... When Israel is dealt with with God at the end and he fulfills his promises, that's where you're going to see the fullness of the new covenant come into play. And you're going to see the fullness of the new heart that was promised to them. We just get to benefit in much of the process now. So that's my opinion. That's what I hold to at this point in terms of my understanding of it. Um, I am not prepared to say completely, totally that... This is not the new covenant or the, the, the new heart of the new covenant that we're in. But I'm very open to saying, to considering that it might, we might not be in it totally in that way. Um, so I recognize there's, look, in saying that, I recognize there's a whole lot of implications that got to be worked out. You know, so did Jesus' death not? What, is he, what did his death do? I, there's just a lot of discussion that needs to take place about that. Jeff? You know, and, and you hear that already, not yet, terminology in so many theologians that some things have happened already and others yeah. are still left. Yeah, and I think I, I'm, I'm okay saying in terms of all that the New Covenant 
is spelled out to be in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36. There are some already, but not yet realities with it. And just because some of them are already doesn't mean that we should call it as full-blown everything from Jeremiah 31. If you do that, then you have to start doing funny things like, well, who was it promised to? Well, the house of Israel, the house of Jacob. Well, is that us? And so then theologians start calling the church Israel and Israel the church, and, and that's the way they just get around it. But I don't think you can do that with God's word. But um, let's move on. You can throw stones at me later if you want to. Uh, Romans six eleven. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Where's that? Consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Where is that? New creation. Here you are. This is your mindset every day. I count myself, I reckon myself like I reckon an account ledger, like a, in, in finances. I count myself to be dead to sin and alive to God. By the way, one of the things we need to bring back um, here, I think it's back in verse... Uh, Oh, end of verse 6. The body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. What are we here? Slaves to sin. We only have one master and we love him. Here, how many masters do we have? Think carefully. We have one master. Good, I try to get you. It's not that master anymore. We are no longer a slave to sin. Can you be stupid and go back to sin? Every day. But can you go back to slavery to sin? That is the promise. That is why every day you preach the gospel to yourself because the gospel is true. I cannot become a slave to sin again. I know that I go back to it and I'll find those shackles on the wall and I'll try to put my wrist in it. It won't close. I will go back to my sin. I will try. But the Bible says, the gospel says, I will not become a slave to anymore. And you trust that and you trust that and you preach that to yourself and you rely on that and you rely on that regardless of how you feel. You always come back to the gospel. You never graduate from the gospel because your flesh all of the time will try to convince you that the very fact that you went back to sin is proof that you were never freed from the dominion of sin. It will deceive you every single time. You must preach the gospel to yourself. Where else are you going to hear that message that you are not under the dominion of sin anymore? Is anybody in the world going to tell you that? Is a a Bible-neglecting church going to tell you that? If you're not reading the Bible, are you going to tell yourself that? There's only one way you're ever going to know that is if you come back to the Bible over and over and over and you come back to the crown jewel of the Bible, which is the gospel, and you preach that to yourself over and over and over. You never graduate from the gospel. We, we have done, the, the evangelical church has done a terrible disservice to the Christian by saying the gospel is primarily what saves you from hell and from, it saves you from all of your sin in the past. You have forgiveness of sin from everything horrible that you did before and you have the hope of eternal life and everything future with him. And we leave Christians standing here wondering, scratching their head, well, what do I do now with my life? I guess I just put some good rules in front of me. No. You preach the gospel to yourself. You come back and you recognize, I count myself dead to sin, but alive to God. Okay, let's keep going to Romans 6, verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. Would that command make any sense here? Look where I'm pointing. Hey, dead man, don't let sin reign in you anymore so that you'll obey its lust. Makes no sense. 
The only place you could command somebody, that command is right here. Don't let it rain in you. It will try. Sin only knows what to do, only knows to do one thing. Sin never stays back and says, I'll be content with a 30% portion of you. Sin says, by its very nature, I am going to do everything I can to get all of you. Don't let it rain. Verse 12. Verse 13. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments or weapons of unrighteousness. So, that's why we show the, especially the distinction here. Now, don't give your members over to sin to participate in sin anymore. Stop it. Don't give your eyes over to sin. Don't give your faculties over to sin. Right? Verse 13. But instead, present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead. That again, you're just preaching the gospel to yourself. God, I'm alive from the dead and I'm yours. I present myself to you and, verse 13, I present my members to you as weapons of righteousness. Now my eyes, I present to you, God, as a weapon, as an instrument of righteousness now. There's the Christian life. Verse 17. Thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, where is that? Though you were slaves of sin, back over here in the unregenerate you, you became obedient from the... You became obedient from the heart. Could you ever become obedient to God from the heart here? No, you became that here. To that form of teaching to which you were committed, the teaching of the gospel and the implications of the gospel for the church. Um, Verse 18, And having been freed from sin, here, watch this, don't miss this. Having been freed from sin, here's what many of us think. We're set free from sin... And now I'm free. What does verse 18 say? Yeah, let me me tell you what your freedom is. Your freedom is slavery to what? Righteousness. Righteousness. Three different places in Romans 6, you are called a slave. You're called a slave to righteousness. You're called a slave to God. And you're called a slave to obedience. You need to preach that to yourself every day. You are a slave to God. You are a slave to righteousness. You are a slave to obedience. You are. Do you believe that? I'm not asking if that's what you did today or in a particular situation because you're always going to have this mixed condition where you're going to do dumb things and go back to the slave, uh, go back to the sin that wants to enslave you. But you must preach to yourself every day, I am a slave of God. It's true whether I believe it or not, whether I've demonstrated it or not. Uh, if I'm genuinely Christ. I'm a slave to obedience. I'm a slave to righteousness. It's true. Preach these realities to yourself. Verse 19. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, where was that? This is all you did. You presented your members to sin and to lawlessness. And what was the outcome? Only more lawlessness. So now what? What's the rest of verse 19 say? So now present your members as slaves to righteousness. And what does that result in? Sanctification. Greater holiness of life. Look at verse 20. When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. When you were slaves of sin over here, guess what? Could righteousness put its its bond on you? 
When you were a slave to sin, could righteousness put its bond on you? Did it? No. You were what from it? You were free from righteousness. That's a terrible thing. We usually think of when you're free from something that's good. This is a sense in which freedom from something is horrible. You are free from righteousness. Not a good thing when you were in this condition. That's verse 20. Look at verse 22. Or th- therefore, what, what benefit were you then, verse 21, were you deriving from the things of which you're now ashamed? What benefit did you have when you were free from righteousness in that horrible condition? What benefit did you get from that? You only did other things that now that you're ashamed of. That's the Christian life. There is a place for shame. Every time I sin, I should be ashamed. You should be ashamed when you sin. Those are things now that you're ashamed of. There's a place for that. It's the right place to be. You can't feel shame on this side. You'll never feel shame on this side. Never. Right here, there's a place for shame. I'm ashamed of the things that I used to do. I'm ashamed when I go back to them. The outcome of those things is death. Verse 22, But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit. What's that result in? Sanctification. And the outcome of that? I never just get it all. You got it all. Second Corinthians 5.17 If any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. This is passed. It's not in the process of passing away. That's not the way Paul says it. Do you get it? This unmixed condition in which you were a slave to sin is not in the process of dying. It is dead. You've got to get that in. You're going to have to say that to yourself a hundred times when you sin. It is dead. I can't go back to that. I can't pick that carcass up, get in it somehow, and live it out. I can't do it. It's dead. That condition is gone. New things have come, right? Um, Go to Galatians 5. Verse 24. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Where's that? Galatians 5.24. Those who um, belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with the passions and desires. The flesh with all its passions and desires... Crucified. Done. Right? Um, how about... Go back to Romans 8. I'm going to just bounce you around just a little bit here. We'll just do a few verses. Romans 8, verse 5. Watch this. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. Now you need to be careful about where this is. You gotta let Paul say what Paul's saying. Because you are in a mixed condition, there is a sense in which you can put your mind on your flesh and go after the things of the flesh. But you have to ask yourself, is that what Paul is saying here? That may be theologically true, but is that what Paul's saying here? Watch this. Those who are according to the flesh is Is that me? Is that you if we're in Christ? Set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, is that us? That's us. We set our minds on the things of the Spirit. For the mindset on flesh is death. That's this over here. That's this condition. 
and it's hostile toward God, or verse 6. But the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. That's over here. Verse 7. Because the mindset on flesh is hostile toward God, it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But now notice this. Watch pronouns. Those who are in the flesh, those. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Look at verse 9 now. However, big contrast... What's the pronoun? You. Who's he writing to? You. Who was he just talking about? Them. Those. Not you. The you cannot be those. you got to pay attention to your text. Okay? You, verse 9, are not in the flesh. That does not mean you do not have the influence of flesh, but you are not in the flesh as he was talking about it here. But you are in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh right now, to live according to the flesh, for if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if you are living by the Spirit, you are, here it is, watch this, here's the fight. You are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. That's the fight. Romans 8. Um, go back to Galatians 5 again. Verse 16. Verse 16 of Galatians 5. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Right here. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. Ever find yourself not doing the things that you please? Can that describe you over here? You were doing the things that you did not please that did not please you. These are the things that can only happen over here. Um, go to Colossians three. I'll just give you one more for the, this part, and then we'll kind of move to the right here. Colossians three. Look at verse um, five. Well, verses 1 to 4, if you have been raised up with Christ, that's this event right here where you crossed, you were raised up with Christ. Not you were in the process of being raised up with Christ, but an event took place. Somehow an amazing event took place historically, and you weren't even there physically. But somehow you were there. What are the events? I was crucified with Christ. I was raised up with Christ. And even Ephesians 2... You have ascended with Christ. Mm. I wasn't there in Acts 1 when that took place. Yes, I was. Yes, you were. Right? All right, so uh, verse 1, if you have been raised up with Christ, then what do you do? You keep seeking. You, this is the Christian life. Keep seeking the things above where Christ is. He's at the right hand of God. You were raised up from this, so keep seeking, keep looking forward. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth, because you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Think about that. Your life, 
is hidden with Christ in God. Is that what I said? Or in Christ with Christ in God? That means you don't fully know what you are yet because it is hidden with Christ in God. Now look at the next verse, verse 4. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Guess what? When he comes back, you then, there's something mysterious about what you are. There's some clarity about what we are, but there's also still some mystery about what we are. But when he comes back, guess what? Revealed. No more hiddenness. Not only will he reveal himself to us and we'll see him, but that when we see him, we will be like him and we will be revealed everything that we are. All of this comes out. What a great day that will be. Uh, then verse 5, Therefore, as a result of this, what should you do now? Consider the members of your earthly body as dead. Count these things to indeed be dead to this. And he gives the list of sins. Immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. Why? Why? Verse 10 or verse 9. Since you laid aside the old self with its practices. You did that in the gospel. You took the old man and you threw him to the ground. I am not going to wear that anymore. I'm not going to be that anymore. You laid aside all of that. Keep going. Verse 10. And you have put on the new self who is being renewed. Now watch this. You put on the new self event who is being renewed. So an event took place in which you are now able to be renewed. This is a renewable condition. Here's another way to describe the Christian life. A renewable condition. A mixed condition. Could you ever renew this condition? No. Will there be any need to renew? No, there's no need. This is new. It's just everything is supposed to be. But right now you are in a renewable condition. What are you doing today as a Christian man? I'm renewing myself in the spirit of my mind. i got to keep coming back to the gospel. I have to keep these truths and these realities about who I am in front of me all of the time. All right. 2 Corinthians 5. Go, go there. Just one on this. Second. Someone is like a truly a believer but living in clear unrepentant sin. Are they still in that state of renewal every single day? You can read 1 Corinthians 11. No, they're neglecting that. And there were some in Corinth who I think were that way. I think that's what 1 Corinthians 11 talks about. There are some of you who even sleep or dead now. They've died in their sin. So guess what? One of God's ways of keeping you all the way to the end is sometimes when you are disobedient to the point you might not be prematurely in your sin. Because God will keep his promise. And one of his tools of keeping his promise is, is sometimes death. And he'll keep you. And you'll be here rejoicing that this was a, was a mess. 2 Corinthians 5, we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God. What is that? We have an earthly tent. If it's torn down, if it's killed, we have a what? 
a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this house we groan. What's the Christian life? It doesn't exclude groaning. It just is tough sometimes. Sin just won't let me go. It won't let you go. Does that make you groan? In this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from. We want this. A dwelling from heaven. Inasmuch as we have put it on, we will not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent here, we groan being burdened because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. This what is mortal here needs to be swallowed up by life. Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God who gave to us the spirit as a pledge. That's a down payment. We have the down payment. It's already been paid for. Just waiting for it. Therefore, always be of good courage in knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are what? Absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Will we walk by faith over here? Nope. We will walk by what? Sight. But now we have to walk by faith. We are of good courage, I say, and rather prefer... Uh, to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home in the body or absent, um, we desire to be pleasing to Him, verse 9. Okay? And there's more and more. Keep reading your Bibles on that. Any other thoughts or questions about that? That's a fire hose. It will save you. In your Christian life. It will save you in your Christian life. Because we always get messed up in our Christian life when we think that this sanctification thing should be an event. It just, it should be done, right? I mean, holiness should be done, right? Why do I keep sinning? It's a process. What was an event? Delivering you from the enslaving power of sin. For whatever reason, I don't know why, but you know what? If I had been doing this, if I had authored this, here's what I would have done. I would take the eraser, I would have just mixed, erased all of this. And I would have just gone, I'm going to save sinners from here, I'm going to put them in there. Because that would seem really wise to me. But for whatever reason, God in all of his wisdom derives much glory from saints fighting against sin and winning, and even when they stumble and his enemy, the devil, goes, ha, they get back up. And God says, ha, back. And it keeps going on, and he is shamed over and over and over and over. And we fall seven times, but the righteous man gets up again. Steve? It would severely impact the church's mission if we died right after that would be a problem. <laughs> and we thank you for pointing out that, that deep truth. <laughs> yeah. Jeff. Well, I just, uh, you know, I, when kind of underlying this, I, you know, I think of it was the grace of God that evoked faith initially to put the life of God into the soul of man and all kinds of phenomenal things. But when I think of that process... Every day it's the grace of God that keeps evoking faith in me that produces the next act, act of obedience. It's, it's every day the grace of God coming, and I'm not doing anything. It's, but the grace of God gives me that next 
moment of faith, which produces that next act of obedience. Yeah. It's just a cycle. Yeah. And, and it's going to happen yeah. because God's doing it. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's amazing. Yeah, praise God. All right, yes, Jeff. So this whole thing seems to be a timeline of such. So part of the timeline right in front of me that says death, you, inner man, nobody, that man. Is that a set period of time? Uh, well, as long as you, when you die, however long you're dead, you're in this condition. You have no body, the physical body, but it is you. Um, you are in the presence of Jesus, where he is, um, and that lasts for as from the perspective of Earth, as long as it needs to, until He comes back and and establishes His kingdom. Um, when He comes to rapture the church, you will rise from the dead first, and we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the air with the Lord, and we will be with Him forever. First Thessalonians four seventeen. Okay. So, yeah, is there time there from the perspective of Earth? Yes, just like um, people that we know who have died, it's been they've been dead for some time now. They will continue to be dead for some time. From the perspective of where you are, time is 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 not constrained there. So, Mark, where do you put Hebrews six four through six? Is that the warning? Hebrews six. This is another great um, passage in which it is very, very important to um, observe the pronouns. Okay? Go to Hebrews 6. I want you to see this. We'll just spend a moment on this. For in the case of those who have once those... See the pronoun? For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. That's a very interesting statement to make, impossible to renew when this is a renewable condition. So he must be describing something that, in my opinion, is outside of that. Watch this. Um... Verse 6, it's impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. Here's an, an illustration. The ground that drinks the rain which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed and it ends up being burned. That's a very interesting description for those. Next verse. Don't stop reading. Don't look at me. Look down. Next verse. Verse 9. But contrast. Next word. What? Beloved. We are convinced of better things concerning you. You are not those. The those can't be you. And you listen, it makes no sense. No sense, you've never in a conversation referred to somebody as they and then referred to them as you. You've never done that. It doesn't work that way. Language doesn't work that way. So who is this you here? It is a different group. Look who the you are. We are convinced. What things are we convinced of? 
the better things concerning you, things that accompany what? Salvation! The they that I was just talking about, now that makes you go back and it makes you say, okay, now I need to rethink through these things. They They were once enlightened. What was that? It wasn't in regards to salvation. They were, verse 4, tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit. That's interesting language, but not salvation. Because we're consists of, concerned or convinced of better things concerning you, things that accompany salvation. That's not what I was just talking about, is what he's saying. Are you saying Judas would be one of those? Yeah. There's, we got people in our church right now this way. There might be some of us here who are in this place. I mean, you get a, you gather believers together. You've got this kind of people everywhere. It's always been this way. It was this way with Israel. It was this way before Israel. It was this way with the church. It's going to be this way in the kingdom. Okay? So your pronouns are very key. So where does that fit? I, there are some people. Who, tell me a parable from Jesus that would match what he just said. Let me give you a hint. Parable of the soils. Which ones? Josh. See the false and grows up quickly. No deep root. Yeah. What's what's Jesus' point in that parable? How many different kinds of Christians are there in those four different soils? How many different kinds of Christians are there? Yeah. There's one. There's only one good soil that produces fruit. All the rest are what? Lost. They will look like it. Wheat and the tares. They look like it. But they fall away. When the Holy Spirit is present in the body of Christ, people near that benefit from that in very, very temporal, earthly, non-salvific ways. That's the only way I think it can be meant. It doesn't mean that they're somehow benefiting internally from the Holy Spirit in regards to salvation because when he gets to verse, again, 9, he says, contrast, however, beloved, we're convinced of better things. We're convinced of better things concerning you, things that accompany salvation. So whatever he was describing that went on sounds religious, but that's all that it was. It wasn't regenerated. You could. Could this be children raised in a Christian home? Sure. Who who profess some kind of this is any professor who professes to have these things and to benefit from these things. Um, listen, what was 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 Judas remorseful? Did it look on the outside like he was really truly sorry for what he did? Did he also look righteous a lot? Yeah, he did. Did he partake of any of the blessings of being with Jesus and the apostles? Was he was he enlightened to many things? He, all of these descriptions would, benefit, would would describe Judas, and he fell away, not because he was in and he lost, but because he was never in and he looked like he was in, and we can't always tell who's in and he was lost. And children growing up in a home who profess, adults can profess. So. So it could be, could you say in a sense, it could be an intellectual understanding versus true regeneration? Absolutely. This right here requires intellectual understanding. It does. It requires much more than that. It requires, look, we're going to look today at a verse out of Ephesians 4 that talks about how the mind is in such trouble. 
You, the mind is engaged in salvation, but the mind must be made new to engage with the material, with the, the knowledge. Tom. Two things, Scott. Yo. Uh, one, would it be your position that the book of Hebrews, the author was writing to Jewish Jews that became Christians, not Gentiles? Yes. Number one, that is, they are they are Jews, and they are even beyond that. Under the persecution of other Jews who are, have not been converted, they are under the pressure of going back to <coughs> Mosaic law and living under it. So yes. And the second thing is on the Elder Blot for about two days now, there's two lists taken from the Carter Study Bible that I put up there. Uh, behaviors that don't prove salvation mm. and behaviors that do prove salvation. Mm. And it kind of talks about the non-believer can be convicted. But the believer will repent. Yeah. And great plug for the other blood. That what that's what makes you and I primarily different from an unbeliever. Repenting. Repentance is used in the New Testament as a conversion word. But there is an ongoing repenting that goes on. That is the difference between a believer and an unbeliever. Guy over here never repents. Never. Until the event takes place. I'm going to close off the questions. We're going to run through our work. Okay? Here we go. Troubling truths and comforting truths from my heart. Three troubling ones. Are you ready? Ephesians 4. If you thought we were turning the hose off, you were wrong. Ephesians 4, verse 17 and 19. Here's three troubling truths from my heart from the New Testament. Number one, what keeps a sinner from God is hardness of heart. There's your blank. Hardness of heart. Verse 17, so this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity. And they do that practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. We're looking at verse 18, because of the hardness of heart. That describes why unbelievers have a deeply ingrained ignorance. Look right before that in verse 18. Because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of heart. That describes why they are deeply ingrained in their ignorance. This is not an accidental ignorance that they are in. It's not an ignorance that caught them by uh, by surprise. They didn't say, oh my goodness, I didn't see this ignorance coming. No, this is planned ignorance. This is um, purposeful ignorance. It's willful ignorance. You know what this is like? I've used this illustration before. It's like the child who just got in trouble and, and mom goes to the child and says, look at me in the eye. When I'm, when I'm talking to you, I want you to look me in the eye. And the little one will not do it. You can grab the little head and turn it towards you and the eyeballs are going every other way but towards you. Okay? What is that little child doing? That child wants to purposefully remain ignorant of the look on mommy's face. I don't want to see it. I don't want to see it. I want to remain purposely so ignorant of the disappointment on mom's face. I refuse. That is willful, willful ignorance. Okay? 
That's what's going on here. So, to describe their ignorance, Paul turned to their heart. Why are they ignorant? Because of the hardness of their heart. Um, That's why they want to remain willfully ignorant. Their heart is dull. Their heart is insensible. Um, That heart cannot be penetrated so as to feel or to be moved from its current status or condition. That heart is petrified. Now, let's walk backwards through verse 18, the rest of the way into verse 17. Watch this. Remember, this hardness of heart is the ultimate cause for the phrase right in front of it. It's for why they are so deeply ingrained in their ignorance. Now watch, why the, they're deeply ingrained in this ignorance. That's the cause of them being alienated from the life of God. They're excluded from the life of God because of that ignorance that is in them. And where did that ignorance come from? Hardness of heart. So they can't even get near to the life of God. And now that describes the first part of verse 18. There's the reason why they're, they are darkened in their understanding. Their reasoning processes are just plunged to the bottom of spiritual darkness. Why? Because they're alienated from the life of God. Why? Because of the ignorance that's deeply ingrained in them. Well, where did that come from? Hardness of heart. And that explains why their minds in verse 17 don't work. They walk in the mind failure that they are. Okay? The unbeliever's mind has failed him. Why we would sit at the feet of the lost and have them tell us what they think about the soul. I have no idea. Psychology. I have no idea. That's not to say that they won't make accurate observations about human condition or human behavior. They have a lousy prescription. They can't have the right prescription because they walk in the futility of their mind and verse 18 tells us why. Why we would sit at the feet of the world who wants to tell us how everything began, I have no idea. They might make some interesting observations, but their prescription or their explanation for how everything began with or without God is futile. They walk in the futility of their mind. We must depend upon a regenerate mind to tell us these things. Um, so let's make our um, way forward here. Um, Number two, when possible, unbelief will naturally take root in the heart, not belief. Go back to Luke 24. Whenever possible, unbelief will naturally take root in the heart, not belief. Luke 24, verse 25, a familiar verse. Resurrected Jesus is walking with two of his disciples on the road to Emmaus. They have no explanation for why things have just seemed to have all fallen apart on them. The guy that they hoped was it is now dead, and it's been three days now that he's been dead. And he finally, who is Jesus, said to them, verse 25, Oh, foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. You are slow of heart to believe all that was spoken through the prophets. Um, Their hearts were not quick to trust in the Christ-centered, Christ-revealing scriptures of the Old Testament. Everything that they just eyewitnessed in the days before. Guess what they just eyewitnessed in the days before? They eyewitnessed a substitute shedding his blood in their place. That's what they saw physically with their eyes. And guess what? It wasn't registering to them what it truly was. Why? Because their hearts were slow to believe what the Old Testament said and promised. Their hearts were not quick to time together to connect the dots. 
They were slow to believe. The resurrected Christ here is having to labor against that natural, rooted slowness of heart that day. Turn over to Hebrews 3. Verse 12. Church, take care, brethren, talking to the church, that as you look at yourselves, there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day. Do they need to be careful that an unbelieving heart will fall away because God sometimes messes up in this over here? Again, what is he doing? Brethren, Take care of each other and be careful that there not be an unbelieving heart that wants to fall away from God anywhere. But, verse 13, how do you do that? Look down. Encourage one another day after day. Go to each other and encourage each other day after day as long as it's still called today so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The church must also labor to root out this natural inclination to not trust the living God. Listen, the effects, the lingering effects of sin, you still have to fight against. You will be slow to believe. You will be slow to believe at times. Okay? When you're in this condition, you are so slow to believe, you will never believe. Over here, you still have a degree of slowness. You must fight against that in the church. The church has to help each other do that. If you do nothing with your heart, men, if you do nothing with your heart, if you put your heart on cruise control, Will it rush into belief? No. Where does shepherding your heart begin in this? Where does shepherding your heart, where does discipline one begin? Why do you have to shepherd your heart? Because it is a mixed condition. You are a mixed condition. Shepherding your heart is another way of saying fight. Shepherding your heart is another way of saying be renewed in the spirit of your mind. It's another way of saying fight against slowness of heart to believe. Number three, last troubling truth from my heart from the New Testament that we'll look at today. Self-made religion never moves the heart nearer to God. Let's go to Matthew 15, verse 7. Matthew 15. uh, Self-made religion never moves the heart nearer to God. This is a troubling truth. Matthew 15, verse 7. You know that the, the, the context, the scribes and the Pharisees, they come to Jesus. They say, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders, the teaching of the elders that we passed down? And he said, why do you break God's teaching? You break God's teaching with your teaching. You came up with your own set of rules and living that actually violates God's. Why do you do that? Verse 7, you hypocrites. Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people uh, honors me with their lips but their heart is far away from me. How are they far away from God? How are they honoring God with their lips? They're trying to be religious. They're trying to be concerned with the things that they think God would be concerned of. And they are far from the one that they think they're focused on. Verse 9, In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. They're teaching as if the real doctrines are the precepts of men. So imagine this. Perhaps those religious men hope that their teaching, their tradition, their rules, their good deeds will be, um, that God will see them and be moved then to set aside his teaching 
for theirs. They've already set aside God's teaching for theirs. Maybe God will do the same. They're confident that this is going to work. They're innovative. They appear very religious, but God's assessment of them is that even though they are religious, their hearts are far from him. Let me, let me summarize these three for you. Follow this. Hardness of heart keeps sinners from God. Another reality built into that, the heart falls into unbelief naturally. Like an ice cube put at the top of a burning hot metal slide in August in Arizona. It's only going in one direction. Quickly. That's your heart. Naturally inclined to unbelief. But suppose it crosses that sinner's mind whose hardness of heart uh, keeps him from God and who is slow to believe. Suppose it crosses that unbeliever's mind. I'm going to try religion. Yeah, that's it. I'm going to try religion. Some of you are this way. I'm going to try religion. On your own, apart from God, You set up your religion and you hope that God will accept your version of religion over God's own commands. And that does not get you nearer to God at all, is what he says. So think about this. Okay, the heart is hard and won't come to God. The heart is slow to believe and won't believe what he says. And even when the heart wants to try to be religious, it's not close to God. What hope is there for the heart of man? There's hope, obviously, in God, and not just any God, but a God who says, I will not base my action towards you on anything that you do. I will base it on my grace and my love and my favor that I just give to undeserving sinners. And what happens to these conditions at conversion? Hardness of heart, slow to believe, um, religiosity. What happens to them? This is a good question. You've got to understand this. What happens to them? Are you enslaved to hardness of heart anymore? No. Once you cross into conversion, are you enslaved to slowness of belief? Are you completely dominated by that? No. Are you completely dominated by a godless religious practice when you cross the line? No. Are you still influenced by hardness of heart? Slowness to believe. Are you ever tempted to try to be religious externally without engaging the internet? Yeah. So you see, you're still influenced by it, but you're not under the dominion of it anymore. That's important to understand. Let's talk about six comforting truths for my heart. Here's the gospel, guys. This is it. God overcomes hardness of heart. God overcomes slowness of heart to believe. And God dispels foolishly offensive, self-made religion that comes from the heart. At the cross of Jesus, at the empty tomb of Jesus, God creates a new inner man to see what this old inner man here in sin could not see about itself. Number one, God opens hearts to respond to the gospel. Acts 16. These go quick. God opens hearts to respond to the gospel. Acts 16, verse 13. And on the Sabbath day... We, Luke says, went outside the gate to the riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer and we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God. She was a Gentile who had 
uh, come over to the God of Israel. She was listening and the Lord, the Lord, the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. What were the things that Paul spoke? What did Paul always speak of? It was the gospel. And the Lord opened her heart. Based on those three troubling truths that we just looked at, what confidence would you have that any heart would open itself up to the preaching of the gospel? No human heart ever will. Unless, what? The Lord opens the heart. Number two, God enlightens dark hearts to know Christ. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 5 and 6. Go to 2 Corinthians 4, verses 5 and 6. So God enlightens dark hearts. He enlightens dark hearts. Here's your blank to fill in. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 5. Paul says, For we do not preach ourselves, but we preach Christ Jesus as Lord, and we preach ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. Why? Because God, who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. If God shines into our hearts to give this spiritual enlightenment, what does that mean about the condition of the heart before he did that? Dark. Spiritual darkness. So at the event of conversion, God <coughs> shines his light in to bring the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. That's his part of his saving work. Who, which God is this that, that shines his light in? Well, it's the God who said... Verse 6, light shall shine out of darkness. When did he say that? Genesis. Genesis. So the one who had the power to speak light into existence, that one with that power applies that power in salvation to save. It takes that kind of power to overcome my spiritual darkness and sin. It takes a creator's power who has now become redeemer to save me, to save you. What is wrong with you is not a small thing. It takes God and God alone to overcome what you have made of yourself. Number three, God cleanses hearts through faith. Go back to 1 Corinthians 15. God cleanses hearts through faith. 15 verse 1 some men came down from Judea and they began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That's your context. Now drop down to verse 6. The apostles and the elders came together in Jerusalem to look into this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and he said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. He cleansed their hearts by faith. God cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you put, a, put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way they also are. It doesn't matter back then if you were a Jew or a Gentile. The heart was filthy and it was in need of cleansing. And God will be the one to do it alone. Because Matthew 15 made it clear that no matter what you do self-religion-wise, you will not find your heart being nearer to God. So God must come and he must cleanse the heart. Uh, by what means will God cleanse the heart? In verse 
9. Cleansing their hearts by what? By faith. What is faith? Faith is that great act of looking away from yourself in order to entirely entrust yourself to God. It is saying, I am done with me. I cast myself on God. I cast myself on God. The way that John, Jonathan Edwards talked about faith, he said, it's venturing your all on Christ. As long, listen, as long as you remain in a condition, as long as your children remain in a condition, as long as any sinner remains in a condition where they are willing to still look to themselves, they will never trust God and therefore they will remain filthy before God. Because you don't become cleansed until faith. Number four, God frees. Now what you need to do is take number four, the number, and cross it out and make it number five and go down to number five, cross out the number and make it number four. We're going to do number four now down there, which was your number five. God frees the heart from sin to become obedient. It makes more sense logically to go to the Romans 6 one. And I just forgot to move it. Romans 6, verse 17, we saw this. God frees the heart from sin to become obedient. God frees the heart from sin to become obedient. Do you see this? God opens, God enlightens, God cleanses, God frees the heart from sin. Verse 17 of chapter 6 of Romans. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart. You became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. When God saves the sinner, the first place that he goes to work on, guys, is the human heart, the inner man. That is where bondage to sin exists. That's where hardness of heart exists. That's where slowness to believe exists. That's where quickness to establish self-made religion exists. That's where all of those things begin and end and thrive. And so God, if he's going to save, he's got to come there and he's got to change it all and make you obedient from the heart. He has to do that. Because you will never make yourself obedient from the heart. I will never make myself obedient from the heart. By the grace of God, here's what's amazing in salvation. Over here on this side, the only voice you can hear is the voice of your precious master, sin. And then when God is gracious and he shines his light when he comes and he causes you to be born again, all of a sudden now you can hear another voice that you could never hear before. You hear the voice of God saying, trust me. Trust what I did through my son's death and resurrection and ascension. Trust me. Cast yourself on me. And in so doing in this event that happens, that's conversion and being born again with the gifts of repentance and faith, we come in and we find that God made us Slaves to obedience. He made us slaves to righteousness. He made us slaves to God. We have become obedient from the heart to that teaching to which we were committed. Do you see that at the end of verse 17? To which you were committed. It doesn't say which you committed yourselves to. We did not commit ourselves to the teaching. We were committed to the teaching. It was done to us. If you view this Christian life here, guys, listen. If you view this Christian life here, that you've got obedience by the hand, you're going to hold obedience by the hand and you're going to bring it near to you. If you view the Christian life that way, you've got a wrong view of it. Rather, obedience has you by the heart. You don't pick up obedience's hand 
Obedience grabs you by the heart. You became obedient from the heart. And now you walk with these commands. The first thing to to never go to when you have sinned, I shouldn't say never. Maybe there'll be times. There's there's an appropriate place for this. I want to say this in, in in the proper way. The wrong thing to do when you have just sinned is only give yourself commands. Hear me out. This is what most of us do. Um, do not be angry. I was just angry. Where am I going to go? Uh, Ephesians 4. Do not be angry. Uh, or be angry and yet do not sin. I cast aside all anger. Oh, I just got to do that more. I got to do that better. I need to be, I need to stop doing that. I need to stop doing the, There's, well, full break. Emergency breakup. Push that down the path a little bit. Back up. And bring in front of yourself some very important realities before that. I'm not saying take that and throw it in the trash can. Postpone it. You come back and you say, I used to be enslaved to anger. And now anger can only have a residue of influence on me. And it's still powerful. But I am not a slave to anger anymore. I have been made new in Jesus Christ. I am a new creation. I, that old thing has passed away. I am made free. I am a slave now to love, kindness, patience towards my kids, my wife. I am not a slave to anger anymore. I'm a slave to these other things. I preach the gospel. I lay the gospel foundation underneath me. I step up onto that and now I grab commands and I say, I won't be angry. But see, when we don't pave the gospel foundation underneath, we're just trusting in ourselves to keep doing the commands. Don't do that. That is a diminished, weakened Christian life. I do it all the time. You do it all the time. We do this. We forget. You never graduate from the gospel. Number five, Christ makes himself at home in hearts by faith. This is a comforting truth. Christ makes himself at home in hearts by faith. Go to Ephesians 3. Verse 14. This is Paul's second prayer in Ephesians. Verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, I pray that God would grant you according to the riches of his glory. Here's what I pray that he would grant you. To be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. Wow, that's good. I should pray that for myself more often, that I would be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. Why? So that Christ may dwell in my heart through faith. Dwell in your hearts through faith. Wait a minute. I thought he already did dwell in my heart through faith. Why would I pray for him? What's going on here? This is not conversion. This is not Christ coming initially in the original indwelling of Christ at conversion that's being described um, the, those that he had written had to had already experienced that, but rather they are to pray for a richer, deeper, practical indwelling of Christ. The the verb may dwell in verse 17 is an intensified word for dwelling. It, 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 it's the word that you did not use if you were going to temporarily dwell someplace. You would never use this word for that because no, this is a more intensified word that no, where you're dwelling now, you're staying put. That's not that's the word that's being used. It's not a temporary dwelling. It's not a it's not the pitching of a tent, 
but rather it is this kind of dwelling that is like this. It's a very much feeling at home kind of dwelling. Let me give you a, a comparison. Go to Colossians 1, verse 19. Stay in Ephesians 3, but go over to Colossians 1. Watch this. Verse 19. It was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him. Same verb. How at home is all the fullness of God in Jesus? How at home is it there? Has it come by to just pitch a tent for a while? Has it come treating Jesus as if he's a hotel room, he's going to stay for a couple days and then move on? The fullness of God? No, no, no. The fullness of God is perfectly at home. Look at chapter 2, verse 9. In him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Same verb again. An intensified verb of dwelling. Paul's point is uh, this fullness of God and all of its, the deity of God is like it's staying put in Jesus. Now, back to Ephesians 3. You pray to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell like that in your hearts through faith. You want your heart, your, 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 yourself to be the home that Jesus says, ah, I love dwelling here. Now listen, you and I both know that he indwells us positionally. We are in Christ and Christ is in us positionally. That's an event thing that is accomplished by God for us. But what Ephesians 3 tells us is that there is also an indwelling of Christ that is a what? A process. And that's what's being focused on here. The question to ask myself, you, is this. I know Christ is at home positionally. How at home is he in my heart, though, on a progress? Does he find my heart a, a place that he feels at home in? That's what we need to be focusing on. And the only way you can do that, look at it, verse 16, is you've got to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man so that this will happen. You need the power of the spirit of God every day if Jesus is going to feel at home in you. I need that. Lastly, number six. Go to 1 Thessalonians 3. 1 Thessalonians 3. Number 6. Christ establishes hearts without blame in holiness. This is comforting truth. Christ does this. Christ establishes hearts without blame in holiness. Now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. Paul could not wait to get back to these Thessalonians. And... May the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you. Why? So that he may establish your hearts. So that he may establish your hearts. That verb established means to be strong, to be settled. May he settle your hearts. And he describes this settling with four different phrases. Negatively, he will establish it without blame. Positively, he will establish your heart in holiness. Where will he establish your hearts? Before our God and Father. When will he establish your heart? At the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. When he comes. This is a future glorification. This establishing of the heart. Listen, did he establish our new heart, our new condition? At conversion, yes. But guess what he's going to be doing here when Jesus comes back? 
He's establishing it. Your heart even then. That looks forward to glorification because it's tied to Christ's presence. Um, so, from conversion over here all the way through to even over here, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit is very active in doing for your heart what you cannot do for your heart. Why would we ever get bored with that news? We should never get bored with that. And so you notice with all six of these, these are comforting truths that are about what God does for the heart. God opens the heart. God enlightens the heart. God cleanses the heart. God frees the heart. Christ makes himself at home in the heart. Christ established this heart. You see, the gospel is all about who? God. What God does. What he does to create a new heart, a new inner man, a new creature. So then what's your response then? I mean, if, if the gospel is all about God, then what, what about you and me? What, what do we do? What is to be your response? What is to be my response to God's amazing and personal and powerful work in our hearts? What's our response? Who, what was that? Thankfulness. Well, good. Thankfulness is definitely a part of all of this. Absolutely. Thankfulness. Never graduate from thankfulness. We're in build. We're focusing on some specific things. I'm going to turn you back. If you want to turn your notebook over and start at the top. What, what do we do in response? What, what God has done with our hearts. What's our response? Yes. Yes. All these things are wonderful. We better shepherd these things that God did. How can we be neglectful when God has been so intentional and diligent? with our inner man. What must we do in this time right here that we live? Oh, guys, you've got to shepherd your heart. You can shepherd your heart now. You can. You could never do it before. You could never tell yourself what you needed to know to tell yourself. You couldn't. You can now. Because you have the Word of God. And go back to uh, Hebrews 4.12. The Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. is able to get all the way down and cut. It, it can show you, but it can judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. So you use the Word of God to get down to the very core of who you are so that you can shepherd your life to God through the Word of God. The men of any church need to gather around this and say that's the kind of man I'm going to be you men need to be like this I need to be like this we need to never stop pursuing this Um, if we become men committed to this um, the church will be strong in the gospel mission there will be more churches that will come out of this church there will be missionaries sent to the ends of the earth there will be Leadership for ministries everywhere if we become men like this, right? So don't give up. Don't give up. I know it's hard. I know you, you, you'll fail. There's going to be days you're going to feel all of these black marks much more than you feel the green ones. But you know what? Start back at reality and say, you know what? Today is a better day than all of the other days here. Because there was nothing good here. And I'll tell myself what's true. This day 
It's only going to get better when I get there, right? Why God has us here, we can ask him someday. But this is where he put us. And so we can either be children who kick and scream and pull on daddy's hand while he tries to walk with us. Or we can say, thank you for what I am now that I wasn't then. And thank you that I will be what I'm not yet. Help me to walk now. We need each other, guys, in this. we got to encourage each other. When you go to your small groups and when you're talking to men in the church, you come alongside one another and you say, how are you doing? How can I help you? Will you help me? We have to care for one another. We have to shepherd our hearts, right? All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, would you please be merciful to men like us? Father, we find ourselves still overcome by sin at times. Sometimes it happens that we didn't even see it coming. Sometimes it happens and after the fact we can look back and see how foolish we've been for hours or days and it makes perfect sense why we have stumbled so badly. But Father, help us to, with the power of the gospel, to rise up from our sin, to confess it to you, to be honest, to forsake it before you, to repent, to Rely upon your strength and your spirit for repentance. Help us to rise up and to walk in that newness of life that you've already set us into. Help us to consider the members of our earthly body as dead to sin but alive to God in righteousness. Help us, Lord. We need your help. We feel the frailty that we are in. We're like Paul. We want to be set free from this body of death. We look forward to that day when you will come and you will set us free, ultimately. We even look forward to death. We're not afraid. To live is Christ now indeed, but to die is gain in every way. It is. It's true. Forgive us when we are so um, fixed on the world that dying makes us feel sad that we'll have to leave what we enjoy so much. God, would you give us change our tastes even more that we would long for the taste of Jesus in heaven Jesus coming back diminish our taste for the world give us a new diet even today with your word wean us off of this world make us into men that the men that we must be that you're calling us to be help us to step into our homes and bring this kind of impact to those that we live with. Help us to step into ministry with this gospel reality. Lord, we need you. We cry out for your help. We, we, we express our thanks, even as we groan in this tent, even as we fight, even as we labor and strive and war to put to death the deeds of the flesh. We give thanks to you because... We can pick up the sword to do it. We could never do it before. Thank you for the fight. We are counting on you to be faithful to finish what you completed in us or began in us. You will complete it. We're counting on that. And we strive with all of our might in your grace and by your spirit to persevere. 
And we ask this and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.